Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Mohammed Jalal. You're most welcome, sir. Uh, it's great to be with you once again. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Paul. Welcome, assalam. Good to see you, sir. Mohammed is a, a lecturer in politics in London and hosts the podcast The Thinking Muslim, which is highly recommended. He delivers a regular course for young Muslims exploring the thoughts of Islam and liberalism and is currently working on developing content on the same subject for the Sapiens Institute. He writes for numerous online journals, including Traversing Tradition, Muslim Matters and Cage. And he can be found on Twitter, and I'll link to uh, that uh, his Twitter account below, as well as to The Thinking Muslim, which I highly recommend. Today, Mohammed has kindly agreed to discuss the intriguing question about the decline of the U.S. liberal order and the rise of Islam, question mark. Is, is actually America declining? Every generation seems to talk about America declining, but nations sometimes seem to have the ability to renew and rejuvenate themselves. The liberal world order that America created after the Second World War, is that in decline? And what exactly is the liberal world order that many refer to? And what are the signs of its alleged decline? And also, there's a question about how are Russia and China challenging American hegemony? Because they certainly appear to be so at the moment. Muslims, though, believe in an Islamic world order, which has been around for centuries in many different forms. How are we to think uh, about this in the, current in the current context that we find ourselves in? What is distinctive about the Islamic political order that was inaugurated by the Prophet Muhammad, upon whom be peace? These are some of the questions that we will hopefully address. So over to you, sir. Well, Jazakallah khair, Paul, and it's uh, really an honour to be on Blogging Theology once again. And uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this successful and reward you for your great work. I mean, I've uh, followed blogging theology for some time and, and I really feel that your platform is, uh, is, is unique in, in many ways. And alhamdulillah, I think um, many Muslims around the world attest to the fact that uh, your content has really enriched them and made us uh, as an ummah intellectually better off. Uh, so jazakallah khair. And I know that you've reached a milestone of 200 uh subscriptions at yeah. 200,000 subscriptions rather and uh, yeah it's not 200 I've reached that yes. milestone a while ago yeah, <laughs> yeah 200,000 yeah 200,000 so alhamdulillah yeah. may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it uh make it in your favor alhamdulillah sure. I mean. um sure. so as you as Barakallah and as, as you said um I want to today discuss the decline of the U.S.-led liberal world order. And um, I put together some slides. And um, as usual, I mean, uh, as, you, as we did last time, you're more than welcome to, uh, uh, to ask me questions and to, to raise uh, counters to some of the points that I make. Uh, the idea behind today is, is really to express what is going on in the world? Uh, we as Muslims, we find ourselves in many ways to be bystanders in this, in this world. Uh, the great powers of the world are uh, developing strategies to uh, deal with one another, but also strategies uh, to undermine Muslim unity. And it's often the case that we feel disempowered as a Muslim yeah. ummah because we, we're, we're seen in many ways to be 
uh, insignificant uh, uh, when it comes to international affairs, when it comes to global affairs. So what I want to do is is really place uh, the uh, the rising tensions in the world within a context, and that context is the decline of, as I said, of the U.S.-led liberal world order. Mm. Uh, I did share with you an article that I wrote that I haven't published yet, which I think I may publish after today's uh, today's discussion. So if yeah. anyone's interested and in, uh, if you're interested in international relations generally, you may want to follow my Substack account and I will be posting that article with uh, cool. some additions, inshallah. Thank you. If, you could, if you send me the link to that, I'll, I'll put it in the description below so people can oh, read okay. it. Thank, Thank you very much. That's that's that'll be great. Um so let's start with this man here, Francis Fukuyama, and the end of history argument. So this is very much a story about the rise and fall of the liberal world order. Uh, I think we're living through an unprecedented period in world history. As Vladimir Lenin once said, there are decades where nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen. And you. I think we're living through such an era, right? Mm -hmm. um, just in this last year, in these last couple of years, we've seen a major conflict in Europe, the war in Ukraine. Uh, we've seen um, major issues uh, regarding international trade, first precipitated by the COVID pandemic, but also by a trade war with China. Uh, we're observing a uh, phenomenon here closer to home, Brexit, for example, where uh, it seems that Britain is retreating from uh, the liberal pact it developed back in the 1970s with the rest of the European Union. Mm. And so what we're seeing in the world is a rapid development of a new type of order, or at least a deterioration of a previous order, which today I'll, I will uh, express or explain to be the liberal world order. Mm. So we've got the war in Ukraine, we've got tensions over China, we've got a rapid change in direction of the world. And uh, it's important to note that political commentators are quite, uh, they, they look at the world today uh, without the enthusiasm that uh, they expressed during the 1990s when this man, Francis Fukuyama, uh, he talked about the end of history. Uh, mm. It's doom and gloom in the media. Academic circles talk about how are we going to prevent a major conflict between great powers. How are we going to prevent, for example, a, uh, a, a possibility of a conflict that may arise, a wider conflict that may arise out of the Ukraine conflict, or, for example, out of uh, the Taiwan uh, situation, which is heating up uh, on a daily basis? Yeah. So the world looks today to be a far more dangerous world than the world uh, in the 1990s. But for us as Muslims, once the dust settles or as the dust settles from these uh, these conflicts and these uh, divisions that are that are uh, that are playing out in the world, we need to ask ourselves, where do we fit in uh, to the debates about the future construction of a world order? Do Muslims, does Islam have anything to say about ordering, about international relations? Uh, did the Prophet والسلام, and the Sahaba and the Muslims afterwards, the great empires that fell, that, that uh, came and went uh, with the falling of the last Muslim caliphate, the Ottoman caliphate, just 99 years ago, um, uh, did Muslims have in their mind a proactive version of an order 
And did they try to imprint that order upon the world? And that's a, a discussion I would like to have at the very end uh, of today's presentation. But let's start with Francis Fukuyama, who in 1989 uh, and on uh, around that period of 89, 90, 91, mm. he wrote first an article in Foreign Affairs Journal. And the response to the article was uh, was pretty, uh, pretty great for him. And so he... Uh, transferred tra that article into a greater book, The End of History and the Last Man, which I'm sure you've read, uh, Paula, you've come across. No, I haven't read it. No, but I've read bits of it, <laughs> not all of it. And it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a great read, actually. And, and, and to be honest, Fukuyama is a brilliant uh, philosopher and, and a really, a really brilliant thinker when it comes to uh, international relations and history in general. And in that book, he wrote the following passage. What we may be witnessing is not just the end of the Cold War or the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. Gosh. So what Fukuyama is pointing out here is that the divisions between the Soviet Union and the USA were very much on ideological lines. These were two comprehensive ideologies, and uh, they fought an enormous battle for su supremacy of their ideologies uh, in their own spheres of influence, and they wished to expand their spheres of influence across the world. This 50-year war led to the defeat of communism as an economic, social, and political system but it also brought down the Soviet Union as an empire or as an order within its own sphere. So as you know, uh, in 1989 and, and uh, 1990, we, we saw some momentous, uh, mm. we experienced some momentous uh, episodes in, 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 in world history mm. as Eastern Europe fell uh, or removed uh, communist governments one after the other, Poland and Bulgaria and, and, and the Baltic states, for example, the Eastern Bloc collapsed, um, partly because the Soviet Union found it unsustainable to continue mm. with its empire economically. I, I say, sorry, I just sorry. I, I was in Berlin uh, a couple of days ago, yes, and, uh, and my my hotel was actually on the Berlin Wall. I mean, it was there. I the Berlin part of the Berlin Wall still exist, mm. and they're kept there in Berlin. Um, as a kind of nostalgic remembrance of what existed, as a reminder of the divisions that literally cut the the city in half, uh, and and now that what left what's left of the Berlin Wall is a beautiful kind of uh, graffiti artist paradise. So they're, they're very high quality graffiti artists. Um, but my hotel was right next to what remained remained of the Berlin Wall. But obviously that that was the symbolic division of Europe between the communist East and the capitalist West, and it was largely brought down, as, as you say, in 1989. Well, absolutely so. And uh, uh, the uh, premier, the Russian premier at the time, President Gorbachev, mm. uh, he came to the realisation that um, Russia had to move beyond its current um, economic decline. Uh, you know, the, the great impediment russia faces that was that it could no longer sustain uh, the type of empire it had tried to sustain for 50 years and uh, what francis fukuyama is pointing out here is that this was not just the fall of a of a power this is was not just the fall of a of a communist state and uh, uh, or of a of a nation state this was a fall of an ideology and in the great battle of ideologies capitalism uh, liberal democracy had won, 
And uh, he went up further to argue that in its wake, there would be no more competitors to the supremacy to capitalism, free markets and liberal democracy. But rather, these, uh, these uh, systems of governance and economic systems would now be the only standard for human beings. And so we had reached, if history was a battle between ideas and between great powers, we had now reached the epoch of that battle. We had reached a peak. And from this point onwards, what uh, the world would face, I mean, he said in his book uh, that uh, from this point onwards, uh, we would be the only thing we would face is is boredom, right? You know, uh, the the young man would no longer feel that he needed to enlist into an into an army in order to fight conflicts because there would be no more conflicts. And and many came after him uh, that and, and they argued that the 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 period, the era of great power competition was now over. And we would now have a sustained period of broadening democracies around the world. And, you know, think about it. Francis Fukuyama is writing in a period where these Eastern Bloc countries, one by one, are all moving to the democratic capitalist world. Mm -hmm. And so we have this enlargement of capitalism and liberal democracy. Um, and uh, events, of course, led to the, the rapid fall of the Soviet Union itself and, and Russia by 1991 was no longer a global power and a great power. And it became in many ways a sick man, uh, yeah. at a, a country that um, no longer had the ability to sustain uh, some of its, uh, you know, some of its obligations. Now, this, I think, symbolizes the humiliation uh, or at least the rapid change that Russia went through during this period. In 1990, mm -hmm. the first McDonald's opened in Pushkin Square. And Russians clamored. In fact, there were journalists who said that some Russians had to fight one another to get, you know, to the front of the queue uh, in order to taste uh, capitalism, to taste. Hang on, to, to taste a Big Mac, I think is what you meant to say. <laughs> Absolutely. With that special sauce. Hang on, this is not a commercial break for McDonald's, sorry. <laughs> and, and, and the Big Mac was a symbol of a superior ideology. It was a symbol yeah. of capitalism. Um, and, um, you know, these were middle class Russians. Uh, these were Russians who were indoctrinated for decades to uh, to believe in the supremacy of the centralized state uh, and the command economy uh, mm. to talk to to believe in the ills of capitalism. Yet within a few years, they were now embracing uh, capitalism in its in its its most vulgar forms. And, and we can probably say McDonald's is 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 part of that vulgarity. Um, Gorbachev, I, I hope you can hear this, but here's Gorbachev in a commercial a few years later. Oh, the volume's not on. I don't know if you, there's a oh. volume. All right, we've got subtitles anyway. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, there we go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is, an, this is actually a commercial. It was a real commercial. It's a real uh, commercial. Uh, which I, I think I saw on TV once a long time ago. Um, it's quite bizarre. The former president of the USSR in a Pizza Hut commercial. Um, and of course, he died recently, didn't he? There you go. <laughs> pizza Hut. Oh, dear. Good friends, great pizza. Now, in a way, 
uh, this symbolized the, the victory of American values over Russia. Not only was the, is the last Russian uh, great Soviet leader uh, now uh, cashing in by, said, by, mm. um, uh, by um, these commercials with Pizza Hut. And uh, he actually uh, also cashed in with this uh, commercial um, uh, for a, one of the, 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 the uh, luxury brands. Uh, what is it? The, the, oh, I can't, I can't remember. No, but Blogging Thought is not a commercial channel, really. So we're not, it's clearly a very exclusive brand of baggage or luggage yeah. there. You can see that. Uh, available in Knightsbridge, shall we say, in England. Exactly, exactly. Um, mm. And so the symbolism was pretty clear. The Soviet mm. Union had collapsed, and in its way, capitalism, liberal democracy would now reign supreme in the world. Mm. Uh, mm. Thomas Friedman, a New York Times journalist at the time, he wrote a ridiculous article, um, and yeah. uh, it became known as the Golden Artist Theory of Conflict Prevention. Oh, really? And in that article, he argued that no two countries that had a McDonald's restaurant would ever go to war with one another. Oh. Because McDonald's represents a, a superior global supply chain. <laughs> when you have McDonald's, you have economic interdependence. And as a result, uh, your corporations would never want you to go to war with your neighbors or with other countries because it's going to disrupt uh, that uh, supply chain. Right. Mm. Uh, now, this goes back to uh, I think we had a discussion about this when we last talked. This goes back to that Kantian notion of uh, of peace, the Kantian peace mm. idea, the idea that uh, countries that look and feel like one another are not going to go to war with one another. Mm. Um, it, it became known as a democratic peace theory or the free market peace theory, the idea that countries that are capitalist countries and liberal democracies are less likely to fight with one another. Of course, uh, this theory was debunked when Russia uh, invaded Ukraine. Both countries had McDonald's in them and uh, it didn't stop Russia from invading no. Ukraine. Um, so what I want to do is briefly talk about the time period between 1945 and today and what's happened in the world for us to say that successful period in 1991, where Francis Fukuyama is talking about a world that is going to be unipolar with America at the top and with a uh, with a uh, with capitalism, free market economies uh, and liberal democracies as the only valid system. What mm. happened to that period of jubilation to what we find today, where the United States in many ways is on the back foot? where you have a revival of great power competition, where you've got the rise of major competitors like China and even Russia, where the world no longer seems to follow in, in, uniform, in a uniform manner the writ of the United States as it used to follow in the past, right, in, in, from 91 onwards. And, and maybe this, the following slide, in fact, is, is a better explanation of this. <clears throat> At the end of the Cold War, um, uh, the United States established, as I said, this, this unipolar supremacy in the world. And it expanded uh, its reach in the world, but it also expanded democracy. It expanded uh, capitalism. Uh, president Clinton, who was the president for the majority of the 1990s, president of the United States, uh, his doctrine, his theory was the democratic enlargement theory. And it was a doctrine that 
the way to uh, expand democracy is first by expanding uh, globalization, by, by expanding free markets. Mm. When a country becomes a capitalist economy and uh, begins to realize or trade with the world as a capitalist economy, uh, what, you, what you have is democracy then becomes the obvious, uh, the obvious logic of that movement. And so the idea was that the more middle class uh, a capitalism creates in a particular country like China or Russia, the more there will be a clamor for democracy. And within time, as, uh, as Fukuyama predicted, the world will be full of these democracies, uh, but not only full of these democracies, they would respect the United States uh, position as uh, the, the umpire, the state responsible for adjudicating differences that may occur between states, right? So um, this type of order was, was developed during the 1990s. But as we see, um, by the 2000s, this order is somewhat unraveling. At mm. the time, I remember reading an article by a, uh, uh, an international relations theorist who writes for uh, the Center for foreign, uh, for, for, uh, uh, for foreign Affairs, the Foreign Affairs Journal. Um, and uh, he, a man called Richard Haas, and he's the first person really to talk about the unraveling. And he was sort of seeing in distance that things were not working out as America had envisaged the world would work out after the decline of the Soviet Union. Uh, the world was moving away from democracy and moving away from at least the American version of capitalism and free markets. And that was partly down to uh, some of the actions of the United States. And I want to talk a little bit to that later <clears> on today. Um, its uh, actions in the Middle East in particular really made the United States look and feel like uh, less like a benign power and more like a, a malign hegemonic power with, with ambitions that were pretty unsavory. Um, and in particular, the war in Iraq, it, it really dented America's reputation around the world, together with Guantanamo Bay and uh, the, the countless atrocities of the United States Army as it entered uh, these lands. Um, and, and obviously, we're, we're seeing the end of that period in some shape or form. Uh, the United States, back in 21, uh, uh, it, uh, it, left the, it left Afghanistan. And it was a total humiliation, of course. Uh, after 20 years uh, of blood and treasure, the United States ha had nothing to show for itself. Uh, but but it's interesting that Guantanamo Bay still exists, of course, and of it course still it has yeah. uh, uh, people who have not been convicted of any crime, have never faced trial, uh, yeah. who are locked up um, without any due process uh, for, for decades, uh, yeah. actually. And this is from a country that regularly lectures others about the rule of law, freedom and accountability and democracy. But they, they have their own um, place where people are just locked up and the key is thrown away without any legal process at all. Yeah. yeah. And you're right. Um, and um, that had a, a that <clears throat> made a, 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 a terrific impact or had a, a terrific impact on America's uh, uh, global perceptions. Uh, around that time, I, I remember the American embassy sent out a message to all of its citizens abroad. If anyone accosts you on the street and asks you, where are you from? Say you're from Canada rather than from <laughs> yes, the United States, that, yeah. right? Um, mm -hmm. And that talked to, you know, the, the failure of America to win the peace, the failure to, to establish uh, itself 
as you know, uh, during the Cold War, the Americans were regarded as a, a savior for many countries around the world, especially uh, countries in Western Europe. The Marshall Plan and 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 the uh, the expansion of or the establishment of NATO. These were America's attempts uh, to create a sphere of control uh, where where democracy and freedom would thrive. Well, this mm. was American now unraveling, and it was unraveling by its own hands, right? So we, we get to a point today where um, the position and prestige of the United States is, is being questioned by everyone. And that's partly what I want to talk about today. So let's, let's talk about uh, some of these, let's discuss some of these periods of, of American hegemony. Uh, and, and let's talk about the liberal world order or liberal hege hegemony. Mm. What has become known as the liberal world order emerged as a result of the United States entering into global politics, casting aside its self-imposed isolation and in the process organizing the world in its own image. Uh, after the Second World War, what we saw is that America placed itself uh, not just as a superpower, but also established this really ambitious project of hegemony, the world, and it's one of the greatest projects uh, the world has ever seen. It surpassed, I believe, the breadth of the Roman Empire and even the Ottoman Empire and outperformed the economic prowess of the British Empire. But in many ways, it followed on from the British Empire because it had what we call an ideational spirit. The United States in 1945 saw itself as a unique power untethered by imperial ambitions and narrow national interests. It was what we call an ideological power, augmented by what it believed to be a wholesome idealism. At least this is how what it convinces itself, or how it convinces itself of the righteousness of its mission. If the world was to save itself from the twin scourge of either European war or authoritarian uh, communist superstates, then it had to rally behind this virtuous democracy America in global affairs. And so the die was cast, as I said, and as John Eikenbury talks about in his book, The Liberal Leviathan, what the United States established at the end of the Second World War and what it expanded after the Cold War was this liberal Leviathan, this huge enterprise which was able to envelop the world. But at the height of its power, um, we're seeing today the fraying of this order, but ultimately the withering away of this order. And, and that's what I want to diagnose and discuss today. Why is it that the United States today finds itself in this predicament? Now, for the Muslim world during the uh, past century, we've really been in the shadows of the great powers, right? Either the Soviet Union or America. When the United States established its unipolarity after 1991, the Muslim world really found itself to be restrained by just the power of the United States. So if, if any, any actors within the, the Muslim world try to maneuver beyond uh, the shadow or beyond the, uh, the, um, the United States and its writ, uh, it would be punished. And, and Saddam Hussein in the Iraq war is one great example of that. Of course, Saddam Hussein is no friend to Islam. But Saddam Hussein did not play the game uh, that the United States had established in the Middle East. Mm. And mm. so he had to go. Um, but what we're seeing today is, is that, that uh, the strength of the United States no longer uh, is present, or at least it's declining. 
And that gives the Muslim world an opportunity, possibly, to carve out some level of independence uh, from uh, the great powers. And I think it's a unique opportunity, which we haven't seen for uh, a century, for over for a century, really, as as a as the Muslim world. Uh, uh, now, let's say a little, a few words about the liberal moment. So, after the Cold War. Um, Uh, the commentators, international relations commentators, began to discuss the liberal moment. America had to establish itself not only as a global power, but as a global liberal power. But also it had to prevent the rise of any peer competitors Mm. um, so that uh, it could consolidate its position as the owner and operator of this world order. And that's the words of, of John Eikenbury, Um, This is why, by the way, the United States supported the European Union and the expansion of the European Union, because it it really helped its strategic imperatives. When Britain wanted to leave the European Union, Barack Obama came to the UK and uh, implored uh, the uh, the great British public, as they say, to to stay within the European Union because it served America's liberal goals. the, Europe, the European Union expanded, allowed for, for the expansion of uh, free market economies and, uh, and democracies. Russia, uh, by the 1990s, as I said, was a sick man. Um, it embraced a very rugged form of capitalism. Um, and uh, the United States sent in advisors uh, to overhaul the uh, the old command economies it's what naomi klein talks about as the economic shock treatment mm. uh, and she, she talks about the knockoff chicago boys the sort of substandard academics and think tankers who went to russia to redesign it, their economies uh, what the united states was trying to do is it was trying to imprint it in a very crude way by the way it's liberal ideology upon these states to prevent these states from rising again. What was really remarkable during the 1990s was its position towards China. Mm. Uh, the Clinton administration believed that the way to, uh, the way to, um, uh, to, to create an environment where China rises peacefully, uh, the way to do that is to integrate China uh, into the world economic system. And uh, what it did is it integrated China into the World Trade Organization with very few conditions. And and by doing that, if you remember, I said, you know, the Clinton administration had this doctrine uh, that if you expand free markets, you create middle classes and in its wake, you're going to create political reform in the country. And so by allowing China to join the WTO and in effect join an exclusive club uh, that gives you uh, equal trading partners with many countries in the world. Uh, you are uh, you are allowing your 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 guiding the path of China's rise. Um, uh, President Clinton at the time was probably pretty naive. I mean, I call it here an intoxicated naivety. Mm. You know, the, these ideas have now been debunked that uh, the world will become politically like America if the world, if these countries became rich. But at the time, experts were saying, we want China and Russia to become the new Germany and Japan. If you remember after the Second World War, these two countries that were enemies of the United States, the United States developed and built them 
as uh, as uh, rising as rising economic powers, but as peaceful powers, right? You know, both countries have uh, issued for a long time violence, uh, offensive wars, and uh, they've kept very minimal armies for defense purposes. Of course, Germany very recently, uh, uh, Schultz has uh, has had to uh, has to change that policy of the of of the Germans. Uh, and it's it, in a way, it's woken up to some of the realities of the world uh, by Russia's recent invasion or continued invasion of, of Ukraine earlier last year. And so uh, this period was pretty ridiculous, I, I think. The innocence is we look back at the innocence and say, well, what a ridiculous way to, to, to think about the world. Uh, but it was the heady days of the post-Cold War. Everyone was reading Francis Fukuyama's book. Everyone believed that the world was moving in one direction and there was just no return. Mm. By the way, and I don't say this lightly, but Donald Trump was right when he said that, uh, why did we do this? One of the biggest follies of US foreign policy was to allow China into the World Trade Organization. Uh, in effect, you gave it, you opened it up, you gave it access to, uh, to international trade. And you, you made China what it is today. You made it into an economic uh, power. Uh, and he's right. Um, and um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a regret, I think, for many uh, liberals in the United States who now look back and say, why were we taken in by uh, these ridiculous arguments? Um, now, we're now talking about American decline. And I suppose what I want to address today is, is why. Why is why is everyone talking about the decline of America, or at least the decline of this order that the United States created? Now, it's quite fashionable to talk about decline. And as a political scientist, I read many papers. I mean, if you go back to the founding fathers of the United States, uh, decline was on the agenda. So it's not a new thing to talk about American decline. In fact, every generation... Uh, does talk about American decline and, and discusses and talks about the factors that, that are leading to uh, America's failure in the world. In fact, just before 1945, there was a great discussion in the United States after the Wall Street crash in the 1930s that the United States' greatest days are over uh, yeah. and we're now going to see a period of, of rapid U.S. decline. Of course, what we saw was the opposite, a period of rapid uh, American ascendancy in the world. Um, but I feel that this period is a, is a very rocky period for the United States. Now, as we know from even our own Islamic history, nothing is, is, is cast in stone. Mm. We know that decline can be reversed. And we know that uh, the Ottomans, for example, uh, they had periods of ascendancy and then they had periods of decline followed by ascendancy. And so this linear version of decline is... is uh, has been, you know, uh, historians today yeah. look at that linear version and argue that when, when in relation to the Ottomans and other great empires, that it's a very simplistic way of viewing history. And I think it's the same for political science. Um, but we are seeing signs of the order that the United States has created, signs of that order fray failing or of that order fraying uh, around the edges, but also, uh, as uh, Richard has said, uh, we're seeing the the slow decay of the United States as a global power. Uh, there are people who argue against that. John Eikenbury, as I as I mentioned, 
argued that you know America has been written off in the past and it can recover its fortunes as quickly as it can dip into obsolescence. Uh, and it still remains the most strongest re uh, uh, military in the world and by many measures still remains the strongest economy. Okay, can I just, can I just yeah. pause there and say, well, what strikes me about this, I mean, this is all maybe true, but it, it's, it's, it's just internally how divided the United States is today, yeah. politically and culturally. Yeah. I, I mean, we've not seen perhaps such division since the American Civil War in the 19th century, where the country is really split down the middle and not just on marginal issues, on everything, the economics and culture, uh, the cultural war itself. And, and this itself, I mean, talk about America's role globally, but if the country itself is so divided, lacking in unity and common purpose how can it present a strong uh, 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 image and identity of itself globally it, it, it's, it's just weakened by its own disunity so I, I think it's not just its relative decline relative to China and Russia but internally it's suffering from this chronic uh, systemic weakness and unless it comes out of that uh, I think that will ultimately be the death of America. It will be its own internal fracturing and decline, I would have thought. And I think you make a wonderful point. Uh, Robert Kagan actually makes this a very similar point. His argument is that it's not just about the the, uh, the rise of peer competitors in, in the world. There mm. is a deeper malaise in the American psyche. Right. Uh, he argues there is a, a weakness uh, in America, an intellectual weakness, uh, in the shared American narrative that is driving its incoherence abroad, exactly. the United States is, as you said, it's split. It's split in between uh, many sides, um, and he argues that it stems from a misguided desire to return to normalcy, a time where America and its government pursued less ambitious, narrow national concerns. Um, um, in fact, I, I talk about it. This is a great article to read. Uh, it's slightly dated in 2040. So it's almost 10 years old. Uh, but it's uh, by Robert Kaken, Superpowers Don't Get to Retire. And it's, it's a fantastic read because it goes through uh, the, the sort of heady period of the post-Cold War and where America finds itself now. And of course, Robert Kagan now is, is, is far more, you know, um, um, far more pessimistic about the United States 10 years on, almost 10 years on. Uh, partly because of the Trump presidency, but also because of the, the mounting challenges it faces at home uh, and abroad. Um, now, as, I, as you quite rightly mentioned, it's not just that America is relatively declining as an economic and military power. It is a retreat of the very ideas that undergird the republic and its imprint upon the world. As I said previously, America is not a normal power. Uh, it rather established itself in the world after 1945 as a power built upon a set of ideals ready to make the world safe for its standards. America had a missionary zeal from the very beginning. Um, uh, it was Winthorpe who argued that in the 18th century that America was the city on the hill, the, the model for others to emulate. Okay, if it I was, just pause you that, sorry, th th this, I noticed this in an article you wrote, you yeah. quoted this expression, city on a hill, hmm. but this is, this actually comes from the Bible, this, yeah. this phrase, and refers to Mount Zion, otherwise known as Jerusalem, that this is a religious concept, that this is pl place of God's dwelling on earth from the, you know, from the, the Torah perspective. So this is more than just a city on a hill in a prosaic sense, it represents 
uh, a nation that identifies itself with this kind of global, almost religious mission to spread its ideas uh, globally. So this is a very um, pregnant phrase, City on the Hill. For those who are biblically aware, um, this is Israel. And, and Israel is the people of God. In America, American exceptionalism, America sees itself historically as the people of God. Uh, you know, um, th th this is profoundly spiritual and religious from that point of view. It's not just a city on a hill in that prosaic sense at all. Uh, you make a wonderful point. And, and maybe, just maybe, uh, some of the you know the, the religious foundations of the United States, those those uh, early pilgrims to the United States uh, who were fleeing persecution in Europe, maybe uh, that uh, that understanding imprinted itself upon uh, those early generations, right? Absolutely. In yeah. fact, uh, Kagan, Robert Kagan, who I, I mentioned in the in on the last slide, he wrote a great book about American history called Dangerous Nation. Um, and uh, it's it's a wonderful exploration of the the founding uh, the the founding moments of the United States and how uh, it it built itself as a as a power first as a regional power then as a global power. It's it's well worth read. Mm. Um, so the United States established itself as uh, this model for the world, but for a very long period of time, the United States saw itself as an isolationist power it it mm -hmm. resolved from the world or at least from the the european powers because it saw many of these european powers to be bloodthirsty to be constantly engaged in war um, and so what it uh, what it wanted to achieve was a model for others to emulate um, the united states constitution is very much a liberal constitution it's one of the first together with the french uh, constitution it's one of the first liberal constitutions in the world uh, by liberal constitution we mean that it embodies the separation of powers of federalism of restraints on the executive a powerful judiciary that holds the executive to account uh, its commitments to individualism and you can see that in the first and second amendments uh, its commitment to secularism, and again, you can see that in the First Amendment, which, by the way, has been tested and stretched today uh, with the new uh, Supreme Court, the six-free conservative Supreme Court. Uh, it had a commitment to civil liberties and religious freedom. And these are very much uh, liberal ideational values. So liberalism underpinned this new government. And uh, notwithstanding the very many contradictions that persisted in the United States, in particular, its position towards slavery and then uh, towards civil rights and civil liberties, um, as, I, as I mentioned before, the United States and Americans saw themselves as that model for the world. And so this liberal world order emerged and uh, liberal because it imprinted upon the international scene the key principles of political liberalism. What happened in 1945 when America came out of isolationism, it uh, established this order, which, uh, which in a way was a reflection of its internal political, social and economic life. And uh, if liberalism aimed at creating stability and civility in human relations within a country, within a polity, the liberal world order would find global expression for these lofty goals. Um, 
And so the United States established institutions uh, in like, for example, the Bretton Woods institutions, which came after 1945, the IMF, the World Bank of the United Nations, uh, was a WTO, which came a bit later. The United Nations was formed um, as, a, as part of this global architecture to, uh, uh, to safeguard these liberal principles. And if you read the Uh, the uh, UN Declaration, for example, of Human Rights or the UN Charter, you see that it's peppered with phraseology that comes straight out of the US Constitution. So um, uh, the this liberal order was uh, was created. And... I love these cartoons, by the way. You got here Superman, who's obviously been mortally wounded by right. by a certain event, which you won't go into. But uh, right. it's a, a very uh, extraordinary cartoon. Um, And 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 actually, yeah, it's 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 a it's a really interesting cartoon. And in in a way, um, if if Superman and Captain America embodied this superpower, this ascendant superpower, right? Mm. Um, you know, these these cartoons, in a way, show that you know the United States, in 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 many ways, is challenged today around the world, and it couldn't have imagined uh, the places from which uh, it now faces uh, these challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, This liberal order is declining. The owner-operator of this order no longer has the intellectual zeal, as you quite rightly pointed out, to carry its burdens. Too many Americans today talk about giving too much to the world. Uh, Ron DeSantis, for example, the governor of Florida, recently when, when talking about Ukraine, of course, playing to a very conservative uh, Trump audience, uh, said that we're not going to sign blank checks for Ukraine. And he accused the Biden administration of doing that. In 2016, during his election campaign, during one of the uh, one of the debates between uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, and uh, Donald Trump, Donald Trump said that we spent six trillion in Middle Eastern wars. What have we got to show for it? We could have rebuilt our country four times over with that type of money. And very again, true. he was pretty. He was right, right? Hey, okay. I found uh, on the web for very whoa. true. Check it out. Whoa! Oh. What happened there? That was I'm not sure. Uh, Um, okay. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, so, so uh, what he was called, what he was speaking against, was the never-ending wars in the Middle East, in South Asia, Afghanistan, and Iraq, um, and uh, the impact that had on the American public, as I said, on the American psyche. Mm. Uh, these wars have achieved nothing for them. Um, the Biden administration in 21 decided to uh, follow through on Trump's promise to withdraw from Afghanistan. And again, even the withdrawal was pretty humiliating for him. Um, and as you quite rightly said, the very ideas of liberalism, which were taken as a given in American society, are now being debated by either side, by left, by the left and by the right. The left observes the economic inequalities that have come out of capitalism. And some within the left uh, embrace what we call a safetyism, a progressivism, which is deeply illiberal. Safetyism is this idea that sometimes you've got to curtail free speech in order to create mm. safe spaces for, for individuals, and you see that on university campuses. The right equally question the power of corporations and globalization. Often we can mischaracterize the Republican right in America to be the, the, the corporate elites, right? And that exactly. was the case, of course, until very recently. Yep. But many on the right and many of the supporters of the right, those people yep. who supported Donald Trump in 2016 and who expanded his vote, if you remember, in 2020, uh, these people have had enough of globalization. 
Yeah. They've had enough of American jobs going to Mexico or going to China. They've had enough of of uh, their industries closing down and having to work two or three jobs uh, in order to make ends meet. Not only that, uh, they uh, have now had enough of the cultural onslaught that comes from the cities, from the western, uh, the uh, the east uh, of of the United States. Um, from New York and from California, the progressive left and some of the... Uh, and this explains a lot of the the, the, uh, the enthusiasm for Trump, of course, who for many people symbolized precisely a pushback against globalization, you know, pointless foreign wars yeah. uh, and uh, the ascendancy of the of a militant liberal left uh, mm -hmm. agenda in the United States. So, you know, there, there is actually a logic to Trumpism. Um, I know a lot of people just hate him and think he's just evil, but but there, there, there are glacial movements here at work and explain his rise and fall as well. Absolutely. Um, it's what we call post-liberalism. Uh, mm. There is now this movement that wants to move away from from, from liberalism in, in the United States and, and wants to go back to a, a period probably of, of cultural uniformity, uh, a period where... Um, uh, the United States was not so outward looking and the United States did not champion the cause of globalization around the world at the expense of its own workers and nationalism. Even Joe Biden has to play to that audience. Um, you know, mm. America talked about America, uh, Trump rather talked about America first. Yep. Uh, Biden talks about buy American. Uh, it's a very similar concept. It's the idea that uh, when uh, when you have two choices, a, a a good from a product from China or South Korea or Japan, and a product made by an American, then you choose America, you favor America. Now, of course, globalization was not meant to be like that. Globalization was meant to follow that basic capitalist ethos that was uh, mm. that was developed by Ricardo. You know, the idea of comparative advantage. Sure. Countries make what they're good at. They make. Uh, products and services that are good at they're good at making, and mm. they trade freely with other countries. and And by doing so, you establish a world of equity between states. Well, we're seeing uh, the the rise of of nationalism, not a, not just across Europe, but but in particular in the United States. Um, so, as you quite rightly said, liberalism is heavily questioned at home. Uh, and so as you you made, you know, the logic was extremely important. How do you pursue a liberal foreign policy when at home uh, the very basic ideas that undergird liberalism are being questioned? Now, beyond that, we do have the rise of revisionist powers. And I, I know that time is against us. So I want to quickly talk about uh, two of these so-called revisionist powers, Russia and China. And I, I would like to express my view that in a sense, Russia acts as a spoiler, but China is really the biggest competitor to the United States. And it is China that the United States has to focus on in the long term in order to prevent this inexorable decline of the, of the liberal order and possibly even the United States as a global power. But let's start with Russia first. Um, now, there was a bargain that was uh, that was struck between the Russians and the West after the end of the Cold War. The United States uh, wanted to integrate Russia into the globalized economy. As long as Russia played the game, the, obeyed the rules of the game and accepted the supremacy of U.S. power. Now, Putin, like many of the former, like many former great powers, 
uh, or many leaders of former great powers, looks to rebuild Russia uh, and rebuild its former status in the world. Uh, he famously said that the worst day of his life was when the United, when the Soviet Union fell. Uh, Putin was a an operative, a KGB operative, uh, who, when the Soviet Union fell uh, the day after Christmas um, uh, in 1991, and there's a story behind that. I once went to a, uh, I once went to a talk by the speechwriter of Gorbachev, oh. and when Gorbachev knew that the writing was on the wall, it was Christmas Day. And um, uh, he 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 asked his speechwriter uh, to to write a speech, you know, to to effectively officially end uh, the Soviet Union. And the speechwriter convinced Gorbachev to give it one more day, uh, so uh, that the good people of Russia could enjoy their Christmas. Right? <laughs> <laughs> now, um, when Putin heard the news that the Soviet Union declined, I mean, for him that was the worst day of his life. And in a way, he's got a cause. Uh, the 1990s was the worst decade for, uh, for Russia. Uh, it became a failed, vulgar capitalist state. Mm. Uh, the oligarchs monopolized the key, in, the key state-owned indus industries. Um, and to add insult to injury, the United States reneged on, a, on an undertaking it, it had made with Gorbachev to never expand NATO eastwards. Um, and as you can see here, uh, NATO over the last uh, decade and a half, NATO has expanded slowly to the borders of Russia. Mm. Um, uh, uh, in fact, uh, there were friendship agreements that were developed with both Belarus and Ukraine. And of course, partly, I mean, it's not the main only reason, but partly one of the reasons why in 2014 and, and yet again last year, the Russians invaded Ukraine was to prevent that possibility ever to happen. Mm, mm. Now, um, Putin wanted to, uh, has the desire to build himself and build Russia once again as a global power. And in 2014, it had that opportunity um, uh, when it uh, invaded parts of Ukraine. And prior to that, uh, it entered the Syrian civil war. By the way, I mean, I, I believe that the Obama administration tacitly accepted uh, that even though it realized that uh, you know the the Russians would would engage in in um, untold misery for for Syrian people, I think by that point uh, the Americans wanted to wipe their hands of Syria, and they realized that uh, probably it was it was okay to establish to countenance uh, Assad as the effective president of of of, uh, of Russia instead of. Uh, fall into a, a possible uh, Islamic regime. Uh, so, in a way, the the Russian entry into that war was pretty convenient, I suspect, for the United States. But even if that's not completely accurate, the Obama administration did very little to stop um, Russia's aggression, except for uh, occasional speeches at the United Nations Security Council, where Samantha Powers would castigate the Russians for bombing eastern Aleppo and for uh, for allowing Assad to barrel bomb and to, to to use biological weapons upon its people. If you remember, Barack Obama had a red line if, if chemical or biological weapons mm -hmm. would ever be used. And that red line came and went, and uh, the Americans did very little about uh, the Assad regime. Now, what is important to note is that the, Russia is acts as a spoiler in international relations. Uh, it's not a peer competitor to the United States in the sense that it doesn't have 
the economic and military prowess uh, to uh, compete with the United States. Um, what we've seen over the last year is that uh, uh, Russia in Ukraine, uh, its, its operations in Ukraine have been pretty abysmal. Um, one of Putin's uh, biggest, uh, we all believe that Putin was modernizing the Russian army and um, uh, Putin wanted the Russian army to be a 21st century uh, modern army which would be able to fight major global conflicts. And, and in many ways, we were fooled by its Syria campaign, which relied a lot on just indiscriminate shelling of cities, followed by mercenaries from the Wagner group who would mop up um, uh, afterwards and, and commit horrific crimes against, against the Syrian people. Uh, but its, its adventure in Ukraine has turned into a quagmire. Uh, it's found itself to, uh, to, to, to not have achieved uh, some of the objectives it wanted to achieve at the very beginning. I mean, I think it's very clear that it wanted to, uh, uh, wanted to take Kiev and, uh, and to remove the, uh, the, uh, the Ukrainian government and to install a, a government in its own image. That hadn't, hasn't worked. Um, Today occupies around 20% of Ukrainian territory. Uh, there is a stalemate. The Ukrainians have fought uh, pretty strongly against the Russians. And of course, it's become a com uh, proxy conflict. The United States and Europe are feeding the Ukrainians weapons. And uh, in a way, uh, the, the Russians find themselves in a very difficult situation uh, because uh, they know that their their forces are being depleted. Their ammunitions are being depleted. Uh, their um, their war strategy has has uh, changed uh, on multiple occasions uh, in the last year. Um, and so, in 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 one sense, uh, it has exposed the 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 sort of the the failures or at least the weakness uh, of Russia. But uh, its economy has done remarkably well. The world has, or at least the Western world, have, uh, have uh, levied uh, enormous sanctions on Russia. But Russia's economy is holding out very well. In fact, uh, the IMF predict this next year, but Russia's economy will grow faster than the United Kingdom and Germany. Wow. Um, and so um, it's a mixed picture for, for, for Russia. And that's partly because the global South has not followed the United States in sanctioning Russia and right. continue to buy hydrocarbons. Even allies of the United States, like India and Turkey, continue to trade with Russia and, and have not pursued or followed or mirrored uh, the, uh, the approach of the United States uh, and her allies. And here we go. Here are the nations that have armed Ukraine or placed sanctions on Ukraine over this last year. And as you can see, it's what we, you know, these are nations... Uh, that we would typically call nations yeah, yeah. Well, the, inter the international order, isn't it? Where you get inter in, when you get uh, the, the, the Western media talking about the international community has condemned X. Mm. Well, they always mean these countries in red, i.e., yeah. Europe, America, and Australia, New Zealand, and Japan sometimes as well. In other words, the, the vast majority of mankind, all of the South, of course, get ignored, and certainly no Muslim countries get included in that. Absolutely, absolutely, and and uh, what you have is, I mean, it tells you it's something fascinating. It tells you something about the writ of America. I mean, back in the nineteen nineties, um, when the United States, for example, levied sanctions on Iraq, all of the countries of the world had to fall in line, right? Mm. Um, and uh, trade with Iraq stopped instantaneously, and and right. uh, 
there was there was uh, very little export of of if any of of oil or petroleum from from Iraq during uh, that that period. And as we know, famously, the Clinton administration levied these very horrible sanctions, not just on the Iraqi regime, but on its people. As Madeleine Albright, who's once asked, if you remember, uh, was yeah. the price worth paying? I think it was half a million Iraqi children had died as a result of those sanctions. And she said it was a price worth paying. You can see that, you can see that clip on YouTube, uh, even today, uh, her saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, that type of world is disappearing. Um, the The ability of America to get to... Uh, to force countries to fall into line, that uh, that power no longer exists, and that's a you know a, a really interesting phenomenon that we need to uh, we we one must explore. But I think the greatest threat to America comes from an ascendant China. I mean, this mm. is a a great quote I got from a couple of years back, or maybe three or four years back now, uh, and I always show this to my students. It's the first thing I show when we talk about. The rise of China. Never before in history has a nation risen so far, so fast. In 1980, China's economy was smaller than the Netherlands. Last year, so this was probably 2018, last year the increment growth of, in China's GDP was equal to the Dutch economy. In other words, China is growing or was growing by a Netherlands each and every year, right? Um, and that just tells you something phenomenal about, or uh, tells you something about the phenomenal growth of China as uh, an economic power. And this economic power is matched by a very, a, a very, uh, a, a growing military. Um, and it's the greatest threat that the United States face, uh, faces. Graham Allison, uh, who's an American realist, uh, he wrote a book about the Thucydides trap, or he developed this concept of Thucydides trap. Thucydides, as you know, was a historian of the Peloponnesian Wars. In, in ancient Greece. In ancient Greece. Or 5th century BC, yeah. yeah That's yeah. right. And uh, Thucydides mm. wrote about uh, the types of tensions that arise when you've got a risen power and a rising power. Mm. And uh, Allison compared uh, these tensions to today and uh, the rise of China and the United States, and the types of tensions that arise out of this power transition. It's what Gideon Rachman calls Easternization, the slow and steady rise of the East. Uh, it's what he, he talks about, the return of the East. Of course, if you remember, uh, before European colonialism, uh, the world's wealth and GDP and, and uh, the greatest uh, the, the greatest stake of GDP belonged to both India and China. And so we're seeing the revitalization of the East at probably the expense of the West. So we've seen this power transition. Um, and as an established power tries to negotiate the rise of a potential peer competitor, Allison argues, there is going to be, there are going to be tensions. Uh, the US is working to hamper, to slow down uh, China's economic ascendancy. And um, it is clear that very soon uh, the, uh, the the Chinese would overtake the United States in in uh, raw GDP. In fact, according to some measures, and I think I've got a slide here. Here we go. Uh, mm -hmm. According to some measures, uh, it's already done so. Uh, the Chinese economy today, mm -hmm. wow. uh, according to this particular indicator, purchasing power uh, uh, parity is far larger than the U.S. economy. Amazing. Um, 
Now, what is the U.S. trying to do? The U.S. is tightening its military noose around China uh, through the development uh, of not just bases and and of uh, uh, of, of uh, its allies in the region, but it's also trying to uh, engage with multilateral initiatives uh, to bind East Asian states ever closer to it. So, for example, um, it's revitalized the Quad. Uh, the Quad was this uh, was this institution that had become moribund, uh, but it's a it's a really important uh, one important institution to uh, to to uh, in effect. I mean, it, you know, it's it's uh, the the Americans do not say it explicitly, but in a, in effect, it's a way to bring its allies together against uh, against uh, China's interests in the region. Mm. Uh, it's also helped Australia very recently. It signed a deal. In fact, Britain was a part of this AUKUS to uh, to uh, to develop nuclear powered submarines for Australia. So there's a lot of movement taking place uh, in East Asia as America uh, bands together with its allies to contain China even further. Um, the United States is looking to uh, secure Taiwan. If you remember mm. last year, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, the outgoing, or she's no longer the Speaker of the House. She visited uh, Taiwan as a as a gesture, and that, and that really compromised uh, what was known to be the One China policy that Americans had uh, had at least symbolically held on to for a very long period of time. The idea that one day the Taiwan will reunify with China, of course, through peaceful means. Um, but by visiting Taiwan, she was sending the message that America uh, was willing to defend at all costs. Uh, the potential uh, uh, erosion of sovereignty that may occur if if uh, China decides to occupy or at least to re-annex Taiwan to it. And as you may know, in 1949, the nationalists uh, who uh, lost the civil war against the communists, they fled to Taiwan and they established uh, their homeland in, in uh, Taiwan. Of course, Taiwan is not officially a nation state. And, and uh, the the, the sort of the, the balance that the United States uh, developed over time was to uh, was to regard Taiwan to to not be a to not ex- officially accept Taiwan to be a a nation state, but neither to allow China to incorporate Taiwan within its own uh, within its own country. Um, Joe Biden, by the way, broke. I mean, prior to uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit, Joe Biden broke with uh, with. Uh, uh, with diplomacy, when he invited the, uh, the the Chinese, the Taiwanese representative, the the senior Taiwanese representative, uh, in effect their ambassador in in Washington to his inauguration, and again that was seen to be a very uh, a, a, you know the, the Chinese saw that as a as a very uh, as a uh, as a as a antagonistic move. Um, so we're seeing the rise of tensions between these two countries. Uh, I would I would advise your you know for those of you who want to read more about this or, or follow this more more diligently, um, it, it'll be it's interesting to see uh, the types uh, the type of let's call it propaganda that's coming out of the United States. If you remember the balloon incident in the U.S. Uh, a, a, a a few weeks back, where the United States blew down uh, the Chinese. Uh, balloon, uh, which was a spy balloon, uh, the type of rhetoric that, that is coming out of the United States, from both the left and the right, uh, is, is very much, uh, they observe, they see 
the the Chinese as as the enemy. Mm. Um, now, lots of countries in the region and beyond uh, these countries in what we call the global south are having to negotiate uh, this rise in power and the trade opportunities that come out of this rise in power, but also the commitments they may have to the United States. Uh, I was listening to a podcast recently, and President Marcos of the Philippines, he used an African proverb, where uh, the proverb reads like this, when two elephants fight, um, the only loser is the grass. Mm -hmm. um, and his point is, look, we've got to hedge between these two powers. We can't take sides, but neither can we afford uh, to not uh, establish cordial relations between the two sides. And we can see that with Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan is a, is a state. I mean, partly uh, the, uh, one of the reasons why Imran Khan was ousted by the army, if you remember, and he was, uh, he, his, his government fell, was because the army felt that Imran Khan had become too antagonistic towards the Americans and too pro-Chinese. In fact, the, uh, a couple of days before he was uh, removed from power, uh, he had visited Russia on the eve of the Ukrainian crisis and had not criticized Russia. Mm. And uh, the Americans saw that as, as a, a move too far. And, and I think uh, the, the army got very jittery and decided, well, we don't want to put all of our carrots in, in, the, uh, in the Chinese basket. We've got to show that uh, we're not willing to uh, to side with one or the other. Anyway, China is looking to assert its historical position in the world, and uh, its economy is rising. Um, as I as I mentioned before, by from 1978 onwards, Deng Xiaoping uh, he had a policy called the open door policy. China was this communist country, a communist economy, and um, Deng Xiaoping realized that communism was holding China back. Uh, the command economy was failing uh, China. And so uh, he, he came up with this really interesting phrase. It doesn't matter what, whether ca the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. It doesn't matter if you're a capitalist country or a communist country. As long as you get rich, as long as you develop your economic power, that's really what matters. And so we saw what became known as socialism with Chinese characteristics, and it was very successful for China. After its entry into the World Trade Organization, China became the factory of the world. And uh, within time, it's, uh, as we've just said, it's become uh, one of the strongest economies in the world. Now, um, it is important to, to just look at some of the stats. Um, uh, the, uh, in 1998, uh, its China's share of the economy was 2%. By 2010, it had a market share of the world economy of 10.4%, uh, with, with exports uh, of 1.5 trillion. In 2013, uh, China's exports were valued at 4.16 trillion. Um, by 2025, uh, according to raw, according to uh, many um, uh, economic institutes, uh, China is going to be the world's strongest economy, right? Uh, and so we're seeing this rise of China. Now, maybe just to reflect on this before I come to my last part, which is Islam. Um, if you think about the, as you quite rightly pointed out, the, uh, the discord that exists within American society today, part of that discord, as, you, as we, we pointed out, is that the American 
population no longer believes that the, the ideas that had undergird the republic for centuries, those ideas are fit ideas to carry the nation forward. But I would say one of the things that are precipitated by internal uh, navel gazing is the rise of China. And that is latent. It's, you see it in, in, um, uh, in, on the TV channels and on podcasts and on, on the radio shows all across America. There is this feeling that um, we have, while we were fighting these Middle Eastern wars, we allowed China to rise. And China today is now uh, too, too, has risen too far. And uh, we can only we can now we have now found ourselves in a position where we can't contain China anymore as as a as a great power. Um, even, by the way, the, the different presidents, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, all three of these presidents are unified. Nothing unifies them. But, you know, these presidents do not have there aren't very many continuities between the presidents, except for its China policy. Uh it is rec a recognizable fact now in in, in in the United States that they've got to tackle China more head on. And uh, we've seen that through a trade war that Donald Trump began and Joe Biden has continued. We've seen that through very undiplomatic um, uh, spats between the two sides. Um, back in uh, 20, uh, 20, 2020, uh, the... Uh, 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 the uh, the United States, the Secretary of State, um, uh, met with the uh, his, his Chinese uh, counterpart, and they had a shouting match, in effect, in in um, uh, in in Alaska, and both sides accused each other of um, uh, of betraying it, their their values. Uh, if you read the speech of the uh, foreign policy chief who. Uh, gave this 12-minute speech haranguing the United States. He talked about how, you know, black people in America are no longer treated fairly. He talked about how, you know, the January 6th affair had created, you know, you talk to us about democracy and human rights. Your democracy is failing. It's falling apart, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you're seeing this war of words between the two sides. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about this because we, we are stuck in time, but Part of the uh, allure of China is its economic wealth, and it is loaning money to very many countries across the world um, mm. uh, in order to buy their confidence and to buy their trust. Now, there are there's debates about how much it's able to to it's been successful in doing so. Uh, but two quick examples illustrate that Chinese money is having an impact. Uh, China built this port. Uh, in Hamban uh, Tota in in Sri Lanka, it's a, it was a Sri Lankan port. Uh, it's a it's a, uh, a civilian port. The Sri Lankan government uh, borrowed money from China. Of course, when China builds these ports and loans money, it uses China's expertise and Chinese companies to build uh, that infrastructure. Um, when it did so, uh, the Sri Lankan government uh, ran out of money, and um, uh, the uh, got into into a lot of debt, and the Chinese government, uh, in effect, wrote off that debt in exchange for uh, for um, a ninety nine year lease of that port. So China, in effect, now owns a chunk of Sri Lanka for the next ninety nine years. Right, mm -hmm. the same in Gwadar in Pakistan. Gwadar has become a really important asset for the Chinese government. Uh, part of the reason why in this region here we know that the Uyghurs are being persecuted 
it's because China's trade travels through the Uyghur regions, through East Turkestan, uh, through the uh, uh, through a one for a very long motorway, the Kalkaram Highway, and ends here in in Gwadar. And the reason why Gwadar is important, it cuts out uh, maybe two weeks of of uh, of uh, travel on the seas um, that may that that Chinese ships would have to take in order to get to the Indian Ocean. And so it's a, it's a far more efficient way to export its goods and also, of course, to import uh, a lot of its energy needs from the Middle East. And so Pakistan has become a very important state uh, for, for China. The problem for the Pakistani government is that, uh, well, we see that with Imran Khan. Imran Khan was a, a believer in, in you know, Islamic and Muslim unity, but he never said a word against the Chinese uh, mm-hmm. when it came to the Uyghur genocide. Yeah. Uh, when he was asked explicitly, you know, tell us about the Uyghur genocide, he said, I know nothing about that. Mm. Uh, I sent my ambassador, he said, to uh, to explore uh, the so-called concentration camps. And he came back and said nothing like that exists, mm. which is, of course, you know, a uh, a, bla- a blatant fudge. But it, it, it just talks to the power, the economic power of of the Chinese now in uh, in, in these countries. Um so this is called a one belt one road project. Anyway, okay, I, I should probably uh, say a, a few words about Islam and about our position as as Muslims. What I've demonstrated today is that there is a frame of the liberal world order. Uh, there are powers developing and arising in the world who have their own antagonisms against Muslims and Islam. Russia is no friend of Muslims. Uh, what it did in in Syria. Uh, was uh, you know it w- was horrible. It it carpet bombed large numbers of civilians in Syria and destroyed hospitals and and killed uh, many uh, uh, Syrian civilians. And and we know that and it's well documented. Uh, and what it did earlier in Chechnya, you know, when it when it carpet bombed Grozny, and uh, in effect, uh, it had a policy of of of, uh, uh, of of rooting out what it called Islamic terrorism by just destroying every house inside. If you see some of the pictures of Grozny in eastern Aleppo, it's, it, you know, it's, it's really uh, horrible to, to witness. Um, but we're seeing, and, and we're seeing the rise of China, of course, which is, uh, again, no friend of, of Muslims when it comes to the Uyghur genocide. Um, so where do, where do we fit in uh, as Muslims? Um, here are some of my thoughts, and, and probably this needs far more exploration in, in, in future discussions with, with, you know, with your future guests. But when we think about the type of uh, thinking that was imbued in the early Sahaba, Ridwan al-Alayhi, the companions of the Messenger, وسلم, we find that the early Muslims saw Islam as a world order. They did not see Islam as a mere spiritual faith that guided the relationship between a person and their creator. Of course, that is the most important relationship. But that is not where uh, Islam stopped. They saw Islam to be a principle of ordering. They saw Mm -hmm. that when they became Muslim, they saw that that was tied into a greater aspiration to produce a world uh, uh, where the justice of Islam will be imprinted upon the world. The liberal world order, if it's a reflection of the liberal values that are imbued within the American constitution and American life, 
than the Islamic world order that came primarily out of the Messenger وسلم, and the Sahaba. That order was to establish Isla an Islamic form of justice upon the world. If we think about the Battle of Badr, which of course was fought in, in uh, the, uh, the month of Ramadan, if we think about uh, the, the great battles that the Prophet وسلم, and then the Sahaba afterwards fought, and uh, we uh, read the letters that were written to the leaders of the Arabian Peninsula initially, and then the two great empires of the Ro of Rome, of Roma, Rome and Persia, the Byzantians and the Persians, we find that the Muslims had within their psyche this belief that Islam was uh, had to, for it to take its rightful place in the world, it also had to establish its own order. And that is why the continuity, regardless of the uh, the, the highs and lows of, of uh, Islamic history, and there have been many highs and lows, of course, uh, over the 1,400 years plus of Islamic history, what you find, the thread that stitches that Islamic history together is the belief by Muslim rulers that one of their key objectives is to establish this type of ordering in the world. It's what enabled the Ottomans uh, to build uh, its state and to expand its state, but also to establish a form of a model, a city on the hill, where um, uh, where Europeans, where Westerners, uh, would visit in order to learn from and to uh, to marvel at at its uh, at its at its grandeur and its its achievements. Um, and so, Islam has its own form of ordering, and I would argue, it is within the Islamic faith. If one is to embrace the Islamic Aqidah and profess La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, one cannot uh, separate that affirmation of faith from this uh, global aspiration, from this belief that Islam ha has come to, uh, to expand justice. And that is, we see that in the, uh, the minds of the Sahaba. Have you ever wondered, how could it be that Muslim Sahabas, uh, uh, companions of the Prophet ﷺ, who many of them were very young, the average age of these companions were teenagers when they embraced Islam. Wow. They were not politicians. They were not uh, statesmen. They were not um, um, uh, generals in, in the army. But within uh, 10 years of Medina, these were people who were carrying the message to the world. Uh, mm -hmm. These were people who were entering the court of uh, of Rustam, who were entering the Persian kingdom, and uh, uh, and declaring the message uh, to these leaders and uh, asking them, uh, commanding them, in fact, uh, to embrace the authority of Islam. Mm. And and that early moment of Islam sometimes is lost in our thinking. Mm. We see the. Uh, the Chinese and we see the Americans and we say to ourselves, well, the only fate for the Muslim Ummah is to hedge between these two because that's the only way we can get a few crumbs uh, from these great powers. We can uh, establish ourselves as, as adequate nation states that may be able to provide for its people. But of course, the mentality we should have is even if today we find ourselves in a weak predicament, and we surely do in the Muslim world, our way of thinking has to aspire to something greater, has to mm. aspire to a, an ordering in the world 
which uh, establishes, as I said, an Islamic form of ordering. And that's our challenge today. We have to break out of this nation-state paradigm that, that has confined us and disunified us for very long. We have to embrace, I suppose, what we can call the ummatic spirit, the idea that the ummah is beyond the nation-state. Mm. And the ummah, in order for the ummah to work, in order for that concept of the ummah to be realized, uh, it has to be something greater than being a Turk or being a Pakistani or being an Indian or being an Indonesian. It is to think of yourselves as part of a larger tapestry, a larger picture. And, and, and that is what the Ummah embraced for centuries. You know, that mm. is the, the, the type, it's what they call pan-Islamism, uh, which, which sometimes is a regretful idea. Well, it's, it's used in a, in, a, in a slightly pejorative way, but it's, it is the essence of what, what Islam is. Um, this month sees the, um, uh, the demise of the Ottoman state, of the Ottoman Caliphate. It's been 99 years since uh, the last great Islamic empire, the last great uh, Islamic caliphate uh, was around. What we need today is new thinking. We need uh, to develop better thinking about our predicament, but also about the type of ordering we require in the world. Now, maybe one last point. We are often very much defeatist when it comes to you know, viewing the world from this particular angle. We we say to ourselves that how you know our our affairs are so uh, are, are so turbulent. Um, how are we ever going to aspire to anything greater? But just think about the Sahaba Ridwan al when they were being persecuted, or the Sahaba just before Khandak, before the Battle of the Ditch, when in effect, if they had lost that battle, not a single person on the earth, on earth would be worshiping Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Where all of the world, all of the powers in the region coalesced to fight the Muslims, um, the Prophet ﷺ gave glad tidings to the Ummah when he uh, when he uh, got the axe and and um, uh, broke the rock. He had a premonition that uh, the uh, the bangles of Persia, the treasures of Persia will be in the hands of Muslims. The doors of Rome would open. Mm. And uh, the Sahaba recognized that even if they were in this really weak position, uh, they, um, uh, they could see that the potential of this iman was so great that one day uh, that would be realized. Uh, you know, one last... Uh, uh, thing I would like to 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 say, if you remember when the Prophet was at his weakest moment, when he and Abu Bakr anhum were traveling from, were migrating, uh, were fleeing in a way from Mecca to Medina, and uh, the Quraysh had sent out a bounty uh, bounty hunters to arrest uh, the Prophet before he arrives in Yatrib, before he arrives in Medina. Uh, there was one non-Muslim, uh, Suraka, who was sent uh, to accost the Prophet Sallallahu and he got lucky. He actually found he he came face to face with the Prophet Alaihissalam and Abu Bakr, and um, uh, and and so you know he now had the prize. There was a bounty on the Prophet Sallallahu neck, and um, the Prophet Sallallahu responded to Suraka, "Return back, and I will promise you the bangles of Persia." Now that sounded like a harebrained idea. How could a person at the weakest ebb, at his weakest ebb? promise a, a desert nomad, a bounty hunter, the Bengals of Persia. But of course, later on, when the Sahaba uh, conquered Persia, 
uh, they brought the bangles to Soraka and that uh, that premonition was achieved. We have to have that type of uh, of mentality, I feel, rather than this sort of very parochial nation state uh, thinking, because Islam is, a, is an order and um, the space that is opening up maybe now because of the rise of China and, and the, the decline of this liberal world order gives us an opportunity to build some level of independence um, in, in, uh, in global affairs. Mm. Um, and uh, w- one of the books that I have uh, enjoyed immensely, um, a little reviewed actually by Shabir Akhtar. He's a, yeah. um, a philosopher at Oxford University. Uh, we, we're both friends of his, I think. Um, <laughs> Islam and political, as political religion, the future of an imperial faith. And this is a very erudite book, very readable, um and uh you know it's not at all woke or politically correct it's basically a uh, full-on and uh, obviously as a philosopher he's coming at it from a particular philosophical metaphysical perspective but it's still excellent reading i think uh, wonderful yeah. to supplement uh what you have said yeah. um well thank you uh, very much indeed Mohammed jalal for your uh, fascinating ex- exposition i certainly learned a, a lot from that and actually at the end you had an optimistic uh, notes, I think, uh, about this space opening up in in the liberal world order for um, a different order to exist or continue to exist. It existed for centuries until it was abolished uh, a century ago. But we had the promise of God, I think, uh, the hadith that speak of the return of the caliphate, this this concept we cannot mention in public for fear of being labelled, lots of bad words, which I won't rehearse. But um, uh, nevertheless, it is a normative mainstream Sunni uh, concept has, has always been there, and uh, and many Muslims I know are are waiting for its return, um, either as a gift from God Himself or something we strive towards, or both. <laughs> I don't really know, um, but that that will be something that many Muslims will welcome. I, I like your perspective at the end there, the Ummah wide perspective, rather than seeing ourselves as narrowly nationalistic uh, people, but we we have a, a broader, deeper theological connection with our brothers and sisters globally whether we live in london or new york or delhi or uh the muslim world uh you know we're, we're part of the same uh people the people yeah. of, of islam so um yeah that, that's a very positive message at the end so thank you very much indeed for that Jazakallah khair. thank you very much paul for your time until next time take care Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.